Hey everybody, Father Tony here, and I just wanted to preface this episode a little bit by saying that the audio quality is not very good. And I want to apologize to you for that because that's not normally how we like to do things, um, but technology got in the way, apparently there was some mercury retrograde nonsense, who knows, happening, but uh, we did the best we can, I cleaned up the audio as best I could, and I am releasing it to you as is now, so you can hear it anyway, because it was a great conversation. So, again, sorry about the audio quality, sorry about some random jump cuts where we had to stop and start the recording, because uh, people dropped out of the call and everything, but here you go, sit back, relax, and enjoy the soothing sounds of Andrew Philip Smith right in your ear holes coming up right next right now right next no coming up right now on talk gnosis after dark hi everybody it's father Tony here and welcome to another episode of talk gnosis after dark uh, we are having some spectacular technical issues uh, today for whatever reason I don't know it, mercury retrograde or some nonsense anyhow we're going to talk with Andrew Philip Smith author of the new book the lost teaching of the Cathars and uh, Jonathan Stewart will join us whenever he comes back online so anyway hello Andrew and thanks once again for joining us on the podcast hello again and uh, glad to be back all right so uh, we talked a lot in the video show about the Cathars and kind of who they were and what they believed uh, your book goes into a lot of detail about what they actually believed and did as opposed to the kind of standard uh, Cathar history, which is all, you know, names and dates and places and battles and all that stuff, which that stuff is certainly interesting and, uh, uh, and worth talking about. But as practicing Gnostics, I think a lot of us are, are more interested in what they were actually doing than the manner in which they were, uh, you know, slaughtered. So <laughs> it's great to have a book like this. So. Thanks. Let's uh, let's get back into it. We, you, we talked a little bit before we we ended about the uh, the Cathar Perfect and uh, their kind of um, their role in, in transmitting the uh, the lineages, as it were, of uh, of Catharism. But there it wasn't exactly a monolithic idea of the what Catharism was, right? There were different differences from uh, Italy to the south of France. Can you talk a little bit about? Uh, the, the varying degrees of dualism and whatnot in the Cathar traditions? Sure. Um, in kind of general terms, I can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because uh, there are lots of specifics, you know, lots of uh, different groups and everything. Um, we, we were talking a bit about the structure of the um, you know, Cathar church, I mean, whether it should even be called a church. And how you have this chain of responsibility from perfect to perfect and that how it's passed on. And, you know, um, the kind of lack of standardization in their beliefs is uh, very much, uh, you know, akin to the lack of overall organization that they had. Uh, I mean, they did have um, bishops and they did have deacons and that kind of thing they were organized into you know different groups um, but there was a lot of scope for individual opinion and especially as the uh, you know the Cathars suffered from persecution and then they had to hide out from the Inquisition and then there was a revival in the 14th century uh, you know, there re really were a lot of different opinions. And so the, the, the Cathars were dualists. Um, you know, I don't think they necessarily called themselves dualists, although they were called that by the Catholic Church at the time. Mm -hmm. um, but they, um, you know, the spirit was uh, good, matter was evil, basically, which is a you know, common pairing of dualities. Um, so the material world was uh, evil and, um, you know, spirit was imprisoned in it. And so we have this myth of the fall from heaven, and heaven is completely spiritual in the Katha story. So various uh, questions emerge. 
Okay, so everybody, we had a little bit of an, uh, te another technical issue here. Uh, we're having a lot of fun here in, in the studio today, but uh, we, we're all back and we all have uh, audio, I think. So we're going to get right back into it. So Andrew, you were talking about the, uh, the, the chain of responsibility between the Cathar Perfect and then um, we were going to talk a little bit, I think, about the, the regional differences between different Cathar groups. So uh, take it away. Uh, yeah, so, so, um, so just the, the whole structure allowed for a lot of individual variation in what was being taught. And then um, the Italian Cathars, they actually formed uh, because of the Cathars of the Languedoc. And then they spread in um, northwest Italy. And they were, you know, northwest Italy was a kind of wealthy area at the time. And, and it had a certain amount of independence from the papacy because, you know, they had the, all the stuff that was going on with uh, Dante at, the, in, at that time and the political issues and everything. So they actually, the um, Italian Cathars had, were allowed a certain amount of independence and they had, uh, you know, some aristocratic patrons and all that kind of thing. And they also argued a lot, the Italian Cathars. Um, there was, that was one of my questions having read a few books about the Cathars was there's nothing much about the Italian Cathars uh, and they don't have this great romantic story romantic tragedy mm -hmm. as the, the uh, Cathars of the Languedoc do um, so they did argue a lot and they split into various groups um, that also gave them a kind of dynamism and so they had all these uh, varying opinions as to uh, the origin of um, matter and spirit. And briefly, uh, I, in the book, I kind of lay out some of the different logical options for dualism. Um, so if you have uh, light and dark or good and evil that's there from the very beginning, uh, that's called an absolute dualism. Um, so those are two opposing powers that are always you know, against each other, and usually it's going to be like that for all of time and all of eternity, unless the, the light might eventually, um, you know, envelop the darkness or whatever. And uh, Manichaean dualism is more of that nature. Um, but what's known as uh, mitigated or moderate or I think monarchical dualism is in some ways more akin to what was going on with the uh, ancient Gnostics, so the Sethians and Valentinians. So in that you have spirit and light and good as what existed at the beginning. Um, but then there was some kind of uh, disaster or accident or whatever. And as a result, you get the um, material world being formed, you know, like the, the classic version of that in the uh, in ancient Gnosticism is with uh, the fall of Sophia and um, you know she falls outside of the Pleroma and then you get uh, the birth of the Demiurge and the uh, formation of the uh, material world and all that kind of stuff. Um, so the uh, Cathars, you know, they had the same kind of questions and issues and solutions to these uh, problems. Um, so, and, and I, I have to say, um, you know, I forget which, uh, <laughs> whether the, which are the Italian and the French Cathars, which are coming up with the um, various uh, answers to, to this. But, uh, and I think they actually varied um, over the course of time. Um, and it, in a way, this is also related to the history of the Cathars. I mean, the things that happened to the Cathars with the Albigensian Crusade going on and then the... Uh, Inquisition, you know, that would convince anybody that the world really was evil, you know, that matter um, had no place in, um, you know, redemption or in the heavenly world. You know, the things that uh, happened to them were, you know, it was almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I think they um, became more extremely dualistic as time uh, went on. Mm. Interesting. Um, what do you think of the recent scholarly uh, assertion? Um, I forget who made it, but that 
the, that the Cathars didn't really exist, that there's, there's no real category that you can call Cathar, and it was all just kind of loosely tied together heresies. Do you think there's any, any merit in that? Um, well, the, you know, it, it's a scholar called uh, Mark uh, Gregory Pegg, I think, who mm -hmm. um, chiefly came up with it. Um, uh, the main book that he uh, founded its uh, view was a, a Most Holy War, which is, which is in itself mainly a history of the uh, Albigensian Crusade. Um, but he, well, he's gone for, for the same kind, a similar kind of deconstruction of uh, Catharism to you know, the same sort of thing that's happening with the academic category of Gnosticism. Mm -hmm. And he has some interesting points. Like, for example, we call them the Cathars now, and the religion that they practice we call Catharism. Um, but they didn't call themselves the Cathars. They called themselves the good men and women, the good Christians. And even the, um, you know, the Inquisition and the uh, Catholic polemicists didn't often call them Cathars either. You know, there are a couple of examples of them being called Cathars. Uh, mainly they were called heretics mm -hmm. or uh, dualists sometimes. Um, so, okay, so it is very much a sort of 20th, 21st century construction that we have of them. And then, you know, we were talking about the difference in opinions between the Cathars in different areas, and then, you know, the whole structure kind of almost encourages uh, quirky uh, local opinions uh, among Cathars. So, if you try to kind of construct a normalized Catharism, you're going to come up with something that people didn't practice, you mm -hmm. know, who tried to put it all together and find the common denominators. Um, so he has an interesting point there as well. Um, and then his view, the, view the, the main problem with him is he doesn't put all his arguments in one place. And he can be very assertive about his opinion, but then he actually doesn't give you enough information, at least in his popular book, uh, you know, to to come up with a coherent argument, mm. and part of the argument depends on the account of uh, Papa Nicetas the Bogomil, uh, who in the twelfth century came to the Languedoc and uh, reconsoled uh, Catholic bishops because there had been a problem with this chain of the um, consolamentum. Um, which was said to go back to uh, Bulgaria and the uh, Bogomils there. So it's kind of a complex story. Um, and then uh, this Papa Nicetus uh, said to have helped the Cathars of the Languedoc reorganize themselves and to, you know, change around the um, bishoprics, all that kind of stuff. And this is before the Albigensian Crusade. Mm -hmm. So that story is actually only found in a 16th century printed book. And he he's of the opinion that it's a forgery, a late forgery, and so that's if that's true, there's no real evidence of any kind of big organisation of Cathars or big. You know, there's meant to be a big meeting of Cathars at the time, the biggest meeting ever uh, of of Cathars uh, you know, happened in the Languedoc. So okay, so you have to agree that this 16th century uh, account, well not, at, at least it's preserved in a 16th century printed book, uh, is a forgery, but um, unfortunately, and there's another writer as well um, who wrote uh, War on Heresy, I think, uh, who, who argues this as well, but neither of them actually present all their arguments as to why we should believe them. And then he um, he actually thinks that uh, as a result of the Albigensian Crusade, uh, the people in the Languedoc kind of got became radicalized and actually forced into this mold of being heretics. And then by the time that the Crusade was really uh, taking over then the Inquisition, people actually kind of were Cathars, you know, or a kind of heresy by that point, but before they hadn't been. So even if you accept all of his arguments, there was a, you know, which I don't, um, or he hasn't convinced me. Uh, you know, there was eventually a point at which the, there was a kind of Catharism. Um, I, I mean, 
Uh, one interesting factor, which I didn't really address in the book, is that you get, um, I, I mean, I do mention that you get Cathar-like groups popping up in other places, um, in northern France and in Germany, uh, for instance. And sometimes the evidence for, for them precedes the uh, evidence for the Cathars and the Languedoc. So, you know, how did they get there? Did they, people, were Bogomils uh, initiating Cathars and the Languedoc? And then, you know, of course, there was a lot of trade and travel going on. And then it spread to Germany. Or were these things cropping up somewhat spontaneously? Or, you know, I, I don't think the, um, you know, the view that there was an overall Catholic church necessarily accounts for those very well. Um, but nor does uh, Mark Gregory Pegg's hypothesis uh, <laughs> really either. <laughs> so there's a lot that's mysterious going on there. And our sources aren't great. You know, it's, um, you know, just as with, well, in fact, we're in a much worse position than we are with the ancient Gnostics, which is the term I use for the Sathians and Valentinians of the early centuries mm -hmm. AD, because we do have the Nag Hamadi Library and other writings of their own now. Um, whereas for the uh, for the Cathars, we have the Secret Supper, which we know that they used because it was a, a copy was preserved in the Languedoc, and a book called the Book of the Two Principles, which is a very dry and tedious uh, examination and kind of, of scripture, arguing for a kind of dualist uh, interpretation of it. Uh, and we also have um, the uh, Consolamentum rites in a couple of versions uh, describing how um, to form the Consolamentum. Uh, but as for the rest of it, what we know is either from these uh, Catholic polemics, you know, these anti-Cathar anti tracts, or it's from the Inquisition records, which are fascinating accounts themselves, but of course, uh, you know, written down by inquisitors. Uh, and when it, interesting thing about the Inquisition records, you know, there's this whole story that this bureaucracy was created um, so that they could, um, you know, file away uh, information about different individuals in the villages and towns and cities that they uh, were um, inquisiting. <laughs> And, uh, <laughs> and they could cross-reference all this information. And so, you know, it's, it was very bureaucratic. Uh, it's taken an awful lot of manpower, you know, with all these uh, scribes. And it's very influential because the Inquisition spread, you know, notably to Spain and throughout the Catholic world and, uh, you know, survived in an in, in anemic form even into the 19th century. Um, you know, and people trace the kind of the techniques used by uh, like the Stasi and the KGB back to the techniques of the Inquisition, you know, the bureaucratic approach to mass oppression, basically. Mm -hmm. um, so these uh, Inquisition records, they're interviews with all sorts of people, people who were known to be Cathars, people who were suspected of being believers, or people who just said hello to Cathars in the street, you know, mm -hmm. or knew somebody's mother whose uncle had uh, patted a dog that belonged to a Cathar. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, so these, uh, you know, so they had an inquisitor. And these inquisitors were very talented uh, intellectuals, basically, um, who, uh, very dedicated and nasty uh, specimens. And they were interviewing these people in the language of the Languedoc, uh, known as uh, Occitan, which isn't actually the same language as French. Mm -hmm. It's a cousin of French, um, and it's about as similar to French as Portuguese as to Spanish, for example. Um, so these people weren't actually speaking French. Um, and they were actually translating the um, questions and the answers into Latin. And, uh, you know, they had the scribe in the corner translating and writing it down in Latin. <laughs> <laughs> so these, unfortunately, these you know, I've been learning a bit of Latin. Um, I was actually going to a Latin class at Trinity College uh, just before this interview. But um, the Inquisition records as a whole have been published in France in, I think, in bilingual Latin and French editions. So I'm not positive about that. Either that or Latin with the French uh, 
apparatus to, to go with it. And I can read a little bit of French, but uh, it takes me ages. So um, most of this stuff is actually has actually never been translated into English, and I was. Uh, taking what I could from dribs and drabs and some of the accounts in a very interesting book called Montaillou, which um, used Inquisition records of the uh, village of Montaillou in uh, uh, Languedoc uh, to really reconstruct what was the whole sort of social life of the village. And the, uh, the scholar Mark Gregory Pegg, um, he actually tried to do the same thing for um, Inquisition uh, attack, if you like, on uh, Toulouse to try and um, get a similar idea of the sort of social conditions in Toulouse and everything. And he, um, fair, you know, fair play to him, he dug up some interesting stuff there as well. Mm -hmm. It certainly was a very, um, <clears throat> a very complicated time in Europe's history. I mean, <clears throat> the, at this time, the the church wields an awful lot of secular power. Um, you know, the the various. Uh, 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 rulers of the various regions. I mean, the, the, the south of France wasn't really even France at that point. It was kind of up in the air. It looks like it could have even uh, possibly been part of Spain if, the, if part of that uh, Albigensian crusade had gone a different way. But um, I, I bet that makes things very difficult from a research point of view. Yes, I, I have to say, um, you know, that kind of large-scale history isn't really my forte. Um, but of course, I, I had to tell that story in order to be able to tell the story of the individual Cathars and uh, mm -hmm. be able to tell the read, give the read of the context for the teachings and practices and all that kind of stuff. Um, so it is very complex and there's all, all sorts of repercussions. Um, I gave a talk on the Cathars uh, at a little uh, pagan moot actually in England um, about a year and a half ago. and. Um, one lady in the audience who'd been nodding enthusiastically uh, uh, throughout the uh, talk, uh, when I asked for questions, she launched into this whole thing about how um, uh, you know, Simon de Montfort was actually the father of the Simon de Montfort who, and this I, I ought to mention that he was um, one of the leading crusaders who was a very successful uh, military man and um, <clears throat> quite you know, responsible for the uh, in um, the success of the uh, Albigensian Crusade in its uh, early years, uh, but he was the father, I think, of another or uncle of another Simon de Montfort, who was involved with the um, creation of the Magna Carta. He was one of these uh, influential barons who forced the King of England to uh, uh, give you know, somewhat universal rights to uh, you know, all, at least, uh, you know, members of the aristocracy and that kind of thing. And it's, it's uh, you know, seen as a stage in terms of the development of de modern democracy, mm -hmm. a real, very much a key stage, you know. So, um, and then, you know, the uh, King of England was going to go over and help the... Uh, uh, lords of the Languedoc to fight against France, the French king, and uh, it didn't happen. It didn't. He uh, didn't get that far. And um, you know, the as you were men mentioning, the uh, kingdom of France was just the northern part. Uh, so, as a result of the Albigensian Crusade, they absorbed the Languedoc and other areas, and so France, you know, became uh, much more of a power, you know, to challenge uh, the Holy Roman Empire and uh, Italy and all these complicated things, you know. So, the, you know, the, the kingdoms that existed at that time aren't the modern European nations, but the modern European nations are somewhat a result of mm -hmm. all that was going on. Yes, I'm listening to a very interesting podcast while I was reading your book that it dovetailed nicely on the history of the Crusades and uh, the section that uh, that they're currently in is the Albigensian Crusade. So it was really interesting to hear the political history on this side and read about the spiritual history on the other side. Um, really, really went well together and helped to cement my understanding of, you know, of what was happening then and, and you know, why all this was going down, I guess it was. Yeah, sure. I, I was kind of very fond of uh, this uh, 
quotation by P.D. Uspensky, you know, the uh, esotericist who was in, involved with Gurdjieff. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, he makes this contrast between um, the history that we know, you know, which is the history of battles and nations devouring each other and uh, atrocities, uh, which he called the history of crime. Mm -hmm. And then the history behind that, which he called the history of esotericism, you know. So uh, that's the history that I'm interested in, but unfortunately you have to delve into the history of crime to get <laughs> any kind of context for it. That's true, yeah. Um, what is the, uh, to switch gears a little bit, what is the creation myth of the Cathars? Can you talk about it and uh, if, if such a thing can be talked about in a monolithic way? <laughs> yes, yeah, so it's true enough that they had um, lots of different takes on it. Um, well, it's, it's basically, you know, what I was mentioning. Um, uh, at the beginning, there was, uh, you know, the father in his spiritual heaven and matter didn't even exist uh, at that point um, now if you're gonna you know myths use um, human-like uh, qualities and uh, characters and events to describe you know spiritual and other types of progressions um, so you run it if you have a heaven that is only spirit you're in, instantly in trouble if you're going to tell a story about it <laughs> so uh, like in the, so in the secret supper I mean they're actually um, having supper in heaven you know sitting down to eat <laughs> in the immaterial heaven uh, and then you get the whole story of uh, how you know, the fall happened how we got into the state that we're in now um, so there was basically a kind um, Satan or the devil or Satanus or different versions of the name uh, was according to one version kind of just exploring and then he found this whole um, world beyond heaven um, with unformed waters and you know all this kind of stuff going on and um, decided he could do something with it and um, got kicked out of heaven and of course this is the sort of unformed material world that he's discovering down there mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, with a third of the angels, um, they get uh, booted out of the spiritual heavenly realm and trapped in the material realm, you know, which is obviously very Gnostic. And then mm -hmm. uh, we have the creation of humanity because, um, you know, all these angels just are just uh, spiritual beings and they have to be housed in uh, a material world, so they need bodies. And um, so the man and woman are created. And then, now this is one of the things that, um, you know, we were talking about possible historical links between the Cathars and the ancient Gnostics and this very slender speculative thread of influence that might exist. Um, but, uh, you know, we have in the Cathars, we have the story, uh, so Satan made the uh, formed Adam and Eve or, uh, out of clay or whatever it was, you know, matter in, in any way. Um, and then he tried to get them to stand up and he couldn't get get them to stand up. So they had to get the spirit from the spiritual world to go inside them. And God actually, God the Father, intervened to help them with this. Uh, so, that, you know, this is something that comes up uh, in mm -hmm. ancient Gnosticism as well. And I also discovered, uh, because I've been writing a book about the Mandeans, um, it, it comes up in Mandean myth as well. Um, now, of course, you might you might argue that it's just one of a number of logical possibilities that's going to crop up, uh, or you could argue that uh, you know there's kind of some kind of visionary experience that leads to this, uh, or that indeed you know there is a, a chain of influence going on there. Mm -hmm. um, so then the um, yeah so. Then you have the material world, basically as we know it, um, with people in it and animals. And uh, this is something I found that very t kind of ties in very neatly with the whole Cathar sort of overview. Um, so each of us has a, a spirit within us, which is uh, one of these fallen angels. Um, 
And the whole point is to restore the spirits of the fallen angels back into the heavenly realm. And uh, even um, you know, Satan himself could be restored again. And again, there are different uh, versions of what might happen at the end of time and uh, whether some people might be left or whether everybody will be kind of rounded up. Um, but, you know, you have the, if you have spirit trapped in matter and that matters the body, bodies die and then you have the question what's going to happen to the spark of spirit that's in the body after death um, and reincarnation is a very good solution to that question so if the uh, spark of spirit or the uh, you know the fallen angel spirit doesn't get liberated and it, get, it passes on to another body mm -hmm. in another lifetime and um, so the Cathars had uh, you know actually believed in the transmigration of souls, so uh, the spirit could pass to an animal as well. And there's, you know, a certain kind of, uh, not quite a karmic view, but, um, you know, the idea that uh, if you don't treat, treat people well in this life, you go on to a worse life, the next one. And the whole point is to meet up with the Cathars, you know, or their predecessors or successors, and to be initiated as a perfect and to die in good standing as a perfect and then you won't have to come back again and um, your spirit will be liberated and go back to the heavenly spiritual realm. So the uh, consolamentum is the means by which that is achieved. Um, so, you know, the, we were talking about the, um, uh, the consolamentum right is preserved in a couple of different versions and uh, you know, the words, uh, this is true of many things, you know, it can be true of poetry, it can be true of uh, Shakespeare, but the, the words are dead on the page, I must say, particularly with rituals. Mm -hmm. And it's very difficult to look at the consolamentum ritual and think how this would have inspired anybody. Uh, but um, people who have um, actually performed the ritual have uh, said, you know, it has a very different impression you know, when you actually trying it out. Uh, so that so that's all, you know, and then you meant to have kind of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And you had this whole mythic background going on that was leading up to the consolamentum ritual. And then knowing that um, if you went through with the consolamentum and you kept your vows, uh, you'd be liberated at death. You know, it's all very much tied together. It wasn't just this bit is the ritual, this bit is the myth. And uh, in those Inquisition accounts, particularly when you had the OTA revival um, in the uh, 14th century and the last days of the Cathars and the Languedoc, uh, uh, you have these accounts of peasants describing the myth as they heard it and it was as it was told to them by the OTA brothers or another Cathar perfect or by Bailibas, the, the last perfect. It's very, uh, I find it very moving, you know, that you have these often somewhat um, vulgarized versions of the myth, but it's still very much a living thing that was passed on. And we have evidence that uh, almost by accident has come down to us because the uh, Inquisition was so, you know, anally retentive about <laughs> right. recording their interviews. Yeah, say what you want about the Inquisition, but they kept good notes. <laughs> they did, I'll give them that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> So that, uh, it, thank you for answering my next question before I got to ask it. That was great. Um, <clears throat> there's a lot left on my list, so let's, let's bang through a couple of things here uh, while we still have some time. Um, Jonathan, uh, who is having uh, significant technical trouble and will not be rejoining us, sent me a message. He wants to know about the relationship between the Cathars and the Troubadours. Uh, what can you say about that? Um, not too much, unfortunately. Um, that was, I wanted to address that in my book, um, but I didn't find an awful lot connecting them. I mean, they were both existed in the same area of the south of France. Um, you can find examples of um, Cathars and Troubadours in the same family. I think even um, Troubadours who are Cathars. Um, but I didn't, unfortunately, at least, you know, given the time constraints that I had with doing the research and everything, uh, 
I wasn't able to find an awful lot of information um, mm. connecting them. All right. Well, that's uh, something we can work on in the future. <laughs> yes, sure. There's so much more to, to learn. I'd love to know if uh, people find um, hard information. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so if you have anything on that, please leave a comment on the, uh, on the, on the blog post here and um, on our website, and we'll, we'll add that to the list of things to research. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of tempting, you know, when you're looking at things, like if you're interested in esotericism, you look at the medieval period, uh, Cathars are interesting, Troubadours are interesting, Dante is interesting, uh, the Knights Templars are interesting. Um, I, you know, the medieval Jewish uh, Kabbalah, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and you find out that they weren't all necessarily on the same side <laughs> or agreeing with each other. <laughs> right. Or, you know, uh, connected. So. Mm. It would be nice if they if it were all wrapped up in a nice, neat package, but that's not how sure. the world works. So uh, uh, women uh, had a different role in... Cathar communities than they did really in a lot of the rest of, of Europe. Uh, can you talk about the role of women in the Cathar faith? Sure. I mean, they had a somewhat equal role to men. Um, you know, you don't want to over-exaggerate that. It was, you know, I don't think any modern feminist would <laughs> approve of the, uh, uh, you know, the way that uh, mm -hmm. Cathar women were treated at the time. But still, uh, you know, considering the times and um, you know, again, we have the contrast with the Catholic Church, where um, only men could be priests, or you know, or, or even in the hierarchy. I mean, the, and, you know, obviously, women had a role as nuns in the Catholic Church. Uh, that was, you know, quite cir circumscribed. Um, so, <coughs> Catholic women could become perfect just like uh, Cathar men could. Uh, you had actually houses of Cathar women um, who would also educate uh, other women. Uh, there's certain uh, noble women of the Languedoc um, became quite influential Cathars. And you have uh, Esclamon de Foix, who's a famous figure who became somewhat mythologized later on. Um, and also the, um, you know, I was thinking about the uh, the whole issue of celibacy because the perfect were celibate. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, to be honest, uh, that's not the most attractive aspect of the cathars <laughs> for uh, modern people, you know. <laughs> um, but it was actually a, great, a good deal more flexible than you might have thought um, because uh, the, there were really no restrictions placed on believers. Believers didn't have to get married, they could have sex, uh, you know, they could basically do what they liked. It was only when they became uh, perfect and then received the consolamentum that they had to, uh, uh, you know, adopt all these uh, strictures and disciplines. Um, so, you know, people could sow their wild oats and uh, often and people become perfect later on in life, mm -hmm. after they'd had families and their children had grown up and all that kind of thing. So to go back to the um, question of women, um, if a woman was celibate in med the medieval period, that would have been very liberating for her. And, uh, you know, she wouldn't have been in the position of a, a nun being cloistered. She could be a celibate, perfect, and still be in the world. Um, and uh, I, I republished a book by Professor Stephen Davis, uh, who's, well, Davies, as you call it in America, <laughs> um, who uh, he wrote a book called The Revolt of the Widows, which was about the um, apocryphal acts of the apostles, things like the Acts of Thomas and the Acts of Philip, the Acts of John, in the second, third centuries. And he found all these celibate female figures uh, that he identified with the kind of widows of the um, early church and he, he was arguing again from a somewhat feminist point of view that celibacy gave a lot of freedom to women mm -hmm. otherwise the position of, woman, of a woman was that she should be married, she should be having children and she'd be having a lot of children mm -hmm. you know, in the medieval period a lot of them would be dying um, and it would occupy all her time so if she was celibate uh, you know just with a stroke it eliminates all those demands on her life and it leaves her free to uh, 
pursue a spiritual existence. Um, and the other thing as, as well, particularly uh, after the Abidjanson Crusade, when there were still Cathars in the Languedoc, but the Inquisition were traveling around trying to identify who they were, and you know, the common people were hiding them. Uh, Perfect often went went around in male-female pairs, because in that way they could pretend to be husband and wife, mm -hmm. but they'd still remain celibate. And, um, you know, that was also a fairly equal relationship. Yeah, very interesting. And uh, I, I think that has a lot to do with some of their modern appeal. I, I think that people look at that as, um, you know, certainly being more more progressive than the, the environment that surrounded them, and, and I think that has an appeal to a lot of people today. Certainly, yeah. yeah. All right, uh, is there anything else you'd like to say bef about the Cathars that we didn't talk about, maybe, before we move on to some of your other works? Um, well, I'd say, um, you know, I was interested in certain questions after I'd read other people's books on the Cathars, um, you know, like the Italian Cathars, uh, uh, you know, and just exactly what we could find out about the um, teachings of the Cathars and everything. And another one was, you know, where they came from uh, and also whether they survived. Mm. And then in connection with whether they survived, you know, the whole kind of esoteric view of the Cathars, the that's flourished since the 19th century. Um, so I have, you know, the last four or five chapters, I uh, look at uh, figures involved with kind of neo-Catharism and then with Cathar reincarnation, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and uh, I, I found that really, you know, one of the most uh, interesting aspects of my research. Um, and it, I must say I had a variety of responses to it. Uh, because, you know, I'm, I'm an esotericist myself. I'm you know, happy to have that label. Um, but I'm also interested in what we can find out, you know, historically and whether an esoteric view of something corresponds with, uh, you know, if you like the facts, but you know, it, it, at least with the sources, you know. Uh, uh, and then very often it doesn't because, um, you know, an esoteric view develops to a particular point often when there's only only so much scholarship has been done and then uh, that kind of solidifies or crystallizes and it can be d difficult for an esoteric view to move on you know in step with uh, scholarly discoveries all that kind of stuff mm -hmm. uh, and there's some kind of crazy stuff going on there some of which I found funny some of which I had both a kind of skeptical response to, and I could understand the appeal of it as well, the kind of romantic appeal, or just the appeal to a meaningful view of what was going on. Mm -hmm. And um, so I, I must say I really enjoyed doing that. And, uh, uh, you know, there's the whole thing with Otto Rahm, who's a pretty famous figure himself, uh, who, um, you know, wrote a book called Crusade Against the Grail, um, which is, I mean, actually, I found that he, what he was coming up with wasn't particularly, uh, you know, his own creation. Uh, people like uh, Gadal and um, the uh, other guy whose name is escaping me, that and uh, uh, Peyrat, uh, another French writer, they'd all come up with uh, you know, these ingredients about uh, Esquimalt of foie descending as a dove mm -hmm. at the castle of Montségur and um, the um, the grail connection with it being the, the grail castle all that kind of stuff um, but uh, he Otto Rahn had a very romantic and tragic story himself because he got picked up by Himmler uh, mm. put to work for the Nazis and then uh, most likely committed suicide uh, in response to that. Um, and then they had the whole thing about the initiations in the caves in the Languedoc. Um, there are these uh, cave systems in the areas where the Cathars uh, flourished uh, that became connected with the, uh, you know, the neo-Cathar beliefs and the certain amount of regionalism, you know, uh, somewhat nationalist sentiment, all this kind of stuff. Um, so even today, 
Well, I thought that even today that there were still initiations going on in these caves, and there was a Rosicrucian organization called Electorium Rosicrucianum, which began in Holland in the 1920s and then had connection with uh, Gadal, and uh, in fact, start, built a whole kind of uh, holiday camp uh, so their followers could go down to the Languedoc and be initiated. And uh, I actually went on along to a talk that. Uh, Lectorium group was giving in Ireland, and I found out that unfortunately um, the initiation cave, the Bethlehem cave, was in such uh, bad repair that it got closed off to the Republic, to the public rather. So it's not being used at the moment. But I really enjoyed um, delving into all that stuff, and Arthur Gertham and the Cathar reincarnation uh, mysteries as well. Yeah, I know. I <laughs> I wanted to get into um, uh, the Gnostic restoration with you as well a little bit and talk about the. Uh, Dwanell's charge to restore the Cath the Cathar Church and everything, but that that's a whole other conversation, I think, for a whole other time. So, uh, yeah, we'll we'll have you back on to to talk about that, I think. Um, so, yeah, let's talk about some of your other stuff. You've just uh, released a, uh, a new edition of what was formerly called uh, the Gnostics um, History Tradition Scriptures, I believe, uh, now called the Secret History of the Gnostics. Uh, what, what's changed in the in the book now? Um, well, the earlier book uh, went out of print, um, so I added a, a preface, an author's preface, where I bring the story up to date a little and an afterword, and um, uh, some additional notes as well. One of the comments I had about the uh, first edition was that I didn't really have enough notes, so uh, I added to that. And I have a a forward by um, Monty Oxymoron, a keyboard player for the punk rock group The Damned. Mm -hmm. He's <laughs> uh, he a bright guy himself and is um, interested in Gnosticism. So it's more more or less the um, original edition, but uh, brought up to date a bit. And uh, I touch on the sort of uh, scholarly deconstruction of Gnosticism mm -hmm. and some of the more recent uh, movies influ influenced by Gnosticism. Or, all that kind of stuff, um, and it can, it's kind of a mashing edition with the uh, uh, lost teachings of the Cathars. Yes, yeah, I, I love the art for both of them. This, uh, you know, the, the the blues and the watercolor thing. It's, it, it, they look really nice together. So, yeah. Yes, they did a good job. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah uh, I, again, if if you're new to Gnosticism and uh, you haven't. You know, you don't really have a grasp on on what this whole thing is yet. Um, that's like I said, that's the book that I recommend most. So uh, do do run out and pick it up if you haven't. Um, you can get it on Amazon and uh, and all those other places as well. Um, so uh, you also are uh, you are the editor of the Gnostic uh, a journal of Gnosticism called the Gnostic. Um, issue six just came out right last um, last fall. That's right. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what What's that about, and, uh, and and what should people know about it? Um, well, that's. Um, let's see. I actually have a copy here. Uh, if I can get that up to the yeah. camera. Mm -hmm. um, well, the, it's a journal. Uh, it's not an academic journal at all. Uh, although I, we've had each issue probably has an interview with an academic, <laughs> or we have some academic level articles, and it has a whole range of stuff related to Gnosticism and esotericism. And uh, it's kind of, a, in some ways, a quirky publication that <laughs> reflects a wide range of material in everything from uh, comics, Gnostic-based uh, comic strips to uh, you know, academic level articles, uh, interviews, um, uh, short stories, uh, a range of uh, articles of uh, Various kinds, and uh, you know, we had a good range of people writing for there. Sean Mar for it, um, Sean Martin, who's who himself uh, wrote a book uh, on the Cathars, which has gone through a few different editions. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I got to interview Alan Moore, um, Gary Lachman, uh, 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 Halevi, the um, mm -hmm. the writer on Kabbalah. In the most recent one, uh, Patrick Harper, there are just loads of people. So, uh, and it's a you know it's a solid thing over two hundred pages with a spine, um, 
so you know there's a good slab of Gnosticism <laughs> whack against your desk there when you <laughs> when you buy it. Uh, now this may well be the last edition because e each issue seemed to be uh, taking me twice as long as the previous <laughs> issue to to get out. Uh, and I have to say I haven't been selling very many copies of this. So um, mm. anybody who wants to buy a copy and support it. Uh, be very much appreciated, and there's an awful lot in there, you know, for anybody who's interested in Gnosticism or mm -hmm. esotericism in general to be interested to get. You know. Yeah, well, I I also encourage everybody who hasn't picked one up yet, definitely go out and pick one up. It's a good, uh, it's a good read. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, and that's um, there's a lot of that going around now. I, I believe that um, uh, Jeffrey Kupperman has just stopped producing uh, the journal of the Western Mystery Tradition too because. These things take a lot of time, <laughs> and and, uh, and for small religious traditions like ours, it's uh, you know it's difficult to uh, to generate the the amount of support maybe you need to to continue. But that's why I do these interviews because I just you know I sit here and <laughs> not a lot of work for me. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, apart from all the technical, I mean, your technical advisor probably has a lot of work cut out for him. <laughs> oh yeah, no, he's fine. <laughs> He just sits up there and presses the buttons. Hi, Dan. Okay. Um, yeah. So uh, it's it, it. You have done a, a tremendous amount of work for uh, spreading modern Gnosticism and, and talking about the different ways that it's being practiced and everything. And and uh, and and you deserve a lot of credit for uh, for all the work that you do. And I know I, for one, appreciate it. And I know our, our viewers, if they haven't encountered your work yet, uh, you know, would definitely appreciate some of the work that you've done as well. So thank you for that. Oh, thank you. Right. Um, let's let's wrap things up there. Uh, like I said, I think there's a bunch of stuff that I want to talk to you about some more about uh, you know some of the other more contemporary Gnostic stuff. But, uh, but let's let's just tease that for now, and we'll save it for another conversation. So uh, thank you once again, Andrew, for joining us and, and taking the time out to uh, to to talk with us this evening. Uh, and we really hope to see you again soon. Yes, thank you. I enjoyed it, and I'd, I'd be happy to appear again. All righty. So then, for those of you who are listening along with us at home, we will see you next week. Bye. This has been a production of the Gnostic Wisdom Network. For more information about this and all of GWN's programming, please visit GnosticWisdom.net. The opinions expressed in this show do not necessarily reflect the opinions of GWN, the Apostolic Joannite Church, or any other organization. This has been released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License and is brought to you by the generous support of our patrons. To support our programs and become a patron, please visit patreon.com slash gnostic. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash g-n-o-s-t-i-c.